High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for some deadly science. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. As an emergency doctor, it's my job to keep people alive. And when people die during my shift, it's considered a failure. I never get used to it. In 2013, the medical community was under fire for overprescribing opioids. And so I researched every single person in San Diego County who died of a medication overdose and compared their autopsy toxicology report to prescriptions they received before they died. That year, 254 people died from an accidental medication overdose. Looking through the medical examiner's report, it was page after page, prescription after prescription of failures, and I call those the death diaries. The research was spooky. I saw the same prescription patterns in dead patients as I was with patients seeking drugs in the emergency department. I was communicating with ghosts who were warning me to save my living patients. I realized that being a good doctor can be like being a good parent. As a mother of four kids, sometimes I have to say no to my kids out of love and concern. And as a doctor, I had to say no to my patients to the requests of many prescriptions to keep them alive. The research changed my life as a physician and really understanding medication safety. The death diary research was repeated in 2015, this time by sending letters to providers who prescribed a medication before a patient died. The letters were not to shame the doctors, not at all. Doctors were victims of the opioid prescription epidemic. When I started my career as a physician, I was told I was not prescribing enough pain medications. I was taught not to judge someone else's pain. I was taught that no one gets addicted to pain medications if they use it for real pain. But I was taught wrong, and I embarked on a journey to fix that wrong in medicine and re-educate. I believe the mission is mostly accomplished. The medical community is no longer over-prescribing opioids, although there is still room for improvement and safe prescribing. Sadly, the current opioid crisis is much worse. The alarm sounded in 2013-2015 due to escalating prescription opioid deaths pale in comparison to the current illicit fentanyl crisis. Today, over 270 people a day dropping dead because of drugs, 60% of them from fentanyl. I think we can learn from history in addressing the current fentanyl crisis. 
And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, I'm Natalie Callahan, and I'm a physician assistant at a busy emergency department. I prescribe opioids and benzodiazepines for patients while doing my best to prescribe them safely. Dr. Lev, I really enjoy working with you and listening to High Truths. It's very informative. My question is about the death diary research you did in San Diego a few years ago. 800 physicians were found who prescribed medications to people who died. I wonder if we are still having a prescription problem anymore, or has this been solved? Thank you, Natalie. I so very much enjoy working with you in the emergency department. You have a very kind and caring bedside manner and attention to detail in patients' concern. And thank you for remembering the death diary research that has really greatly impacted my life as a clinician. And to answer your question, I invited a researcher, an expert who worked with me on the death diaries and has a lot of information and expertise in that. Dr. Jason Doctor is the Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management, as well as Director of Health Informatics and Health Policy and Economics at USC, the University of Southern California. He specializes in behavioral economics and the use of choice architecture to affect policy in health and medicine. To learn more about Dr. Jason Doctor, check out the High Truth Show Notes. Dr. Jason Doctor. Dr. Doctor. Welcome to High Truths. Hi, glad to be here. I am so glad to meet you again and connect because we've done such great work together. And uh, you've been amazing to work with because any little idea or research idea that I have, you blow it up and make it huge and get into publications such as science and very prestigious journals, which I can never uh, think of even doing on my own. So um, great. I want our audience to get to know and meet you. So can you tell us about yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is Jason Doctor, and I'm a professor of public policy at the Saul Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. And um, I trained as a psychologist, I actually trained as a clinical psychologist, but then I sort of re-specialized in the psychology of decision-making. And um, in doing that, I became very interested in physician decision-making. And I think that's the work we're going to talk about today. Uh, but most of my work centers around how to help physicians make better decisions and using what we know from the psychological literature to facilitate that. So it's very interesting. I wonder if you can help uh, regular people make better decisions as well from your knowledge as a psychologist and studying this? I, I hope so. I mean, a lot of the, the principles that we apply, they, they apply to everybody, really. Um, you know, psych, uh, we like to say that physicians are people too. And so uh, physicians have the same human foibles as the rest of us. And um, so we can apply many of the same principles that way. Interesting. Maybe we can talk about some examples, but I want to understand your background or, or you are an expert in behavioral economics. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, about uh, maybe, well, about 2008, there became an interest in applying behavioral economics. But long before that, starting around the 1970s, psychologists became interested in uh, economic models. So economists had this difficult task of trying to understand value in the marketplace and how would markets work. And to do that, they made some uh, simplifying assumptions about how people behave. Most of those had to do with 
um, people behaving rationally. It turned out that if you uh, assume that people behave rationally in all situations, they can always uh, come up with the best option possible for them. We call that op optimizing their their behavior. Then um, a lot of the mathematics of economics really worked well and, and more easily, and it kind of greased the wheels for many of the economic models. And so psychologists got interested in whether these models were actually true, whether people actually behave this way in real life, or if they were sort of fictions that were used to help uh, make the mathematics easier and, and study things on a different level. And we found out that it turned out to be a really fruitful research area because the rational model of decision-making was uh, something that you could put out there as a kind of a null hypothesis. Or like we're going we're gonna to assume people behave this way. And then we're going to do a study and, and find out if they do. And a lot of times they didn't, but they didn't in very predictable ways. And so we were able to, to revise the rational model in a way that um, was more descriptive and more accurate about how people behave um, without having to come up with a, an entirely new way of thinking. We just would make these small changes. Can you give us a practical example? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the... One of the easiest examples to understand is um, what's called probability weighting. That we, people distort probabilities. We it's very hard for us to really uh, behave as if the chances of things happening um, match the numeric probabilities with, of them happening. So we often overweight small probabilities. We react psychologically to. Um, uh, events that might, uh, you know, be uh, fear-inducing, you know, like an airplane crash. It's very rare, but we react to that. And so we behave as if it's much more likely to happen than, than it is. Um, we're also, um, you know, uh, overweight the chance of good things happening as well. So people, one explanation for why people may buy lottery tickets is that they overweight the chance of winning. So that's one example. Other examples have to do with a frame of reference that um, the economic model assumes people um, just kind of always are maximizing the benefit they get from goods and services. But psychologists learn that people operate from a reference level, from the place where they are, how, how what is their current status, and are they going to make an improvement or are they going to uh, receive a loss by making this decision? And what we found out is that losses loom larger than gains and that um, people play, place greater weight on losses uh, and so they try to avoid them. And so that's, that's another example. Then there's a lot of other examples from social psychology where people behave uh, differently in certain social contexts. Um, we, you know, we honor our commitments because, you know, we want to appear consistent and what, how we act. So if I tell you, I told you I would be on this podcast today, if I didn't show up, you'd say, what a bum, he didn't show up. So I'm, so I honor my commitments. Um, I also respond to how other people behave. So uh, looking at, um, you know, the, the actions of others, what we call social norms. Um, if I find out that other doctors are doing certain things, I may follow along and try to do those things too. So those are some examples. That's that's definitely true. I, I see that as a clinician, like, okay, I, 
I have to give off of the Tamiflu. Everybody is. I don't know how much it's going right. to help, but you know, I'm going to be judged if I don't offer. Yeah. That's right. Um, that's so interesting. And, and do you think, you know, and just because this, this podcast is high truth on drugs and addiction, those things apply to the decision of using drugs, even in youth, right? Or like, should I smoke, right? There's social norms around that, um, if it's acceptable or not acceptable, or the 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 risks, right? What yeah, absolutely. Harm, yeah, there. Harm. Yeah, and there are behavioral economic theories of addiction that uh, tap into some of those things that maybe people are present bias, the present value of getting high might outweigh the long-term uh, disadvantage when you're making those decisions. Certainly social norms play a role. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of behavioral science that goes into addiction as well. You know, just hearing you talk makes me realize why some of these surveys and like monitoring the future is so important because they measure things like perceived harm. So as perceived harm goes down, use goes up because of exactly what you were saying. And um, and the importance in prevention science of pushing social norms. I'm going to have some podcasts about that from prevention scientists. But the norm is that most people don't use drugs. But right. people may think that a lot, like everybody does. Right. They, right. they may believe that more people are using drugs than... Uh, than, than actually are. And, and they can also be in certain groups where people are modeling drug use or uh, they, they see drug use and then they falsely believe that everyone's using drugs. So um, as an expert in physician decision-making, does that mean that you as a researcher know how I'm going to react or, or treat my patients, uh, based on that. No, I, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, one way to think about it is that physicians learn a lot of facts in medical school and they're great at learning. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> they're great at learning all these facts and they're tested on these facts. And yeah. then they go and they gain some clinical experience, a lot of clinical experience through residency fellowship, and then through their clinical practice. Uh, but a lot of times, some of that, or at least some of that clinical experience might be biased because they don't always see all the patients come back that they saw. They don't get a, a, a perfectly random uh, sample of patients returning to them to give them feedback on how well they're actually doing. Yeah. Um, and also, there's a lot of gray areas in medicine. So you learn all these facts, and there are certain things in medicine that doctors will always react rationally to because it's very clear, you know, I, you know, you know, to set a broken bone, you know, to stop the bleeding, you know, a lot of things that we will always do. Uh, but then there's a lot of gray areas. And I think chronic pain is one of those gray areas where, um, gee, what do I do in this situation? Uh, do I give an opioid? Do I not give an opioid? Um, it's unclear what the outcome is going to happen. The bad outcome is going to happen far downstream. And um, you probably won't ever learn about it. You might. Um, and so that makes it a very difficult decision and prone to bias to all the biases that we've been talking about because it's not a really a clear-cut case and at the patient visit what's going to happen. Yeah, and that's, that's true. And following the social norms like we talked about at the beginning of my career, I 
gave, you know, here's some 30 Vicodins, why all the other doctors were doing it. And, you know, I felt the social pressure um, uh, to to prescribe. And sometimes the patients do that to you too. Well, my other doctors do that. Like, how come you're not doing that, right? <laughs> right, they use behavioral economics on you. Yeah, you. that's right. And um, and that's why the research that we did was so important and really changed my life because I got to see a different aspect of pain medications um, and and really all controlled medications um, compared to what my my peers were seeing, when when you look at what's happening in the morgue, that really wakes you up. It shakes you up, and you you realize um, it it changes your clinical decisions. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, I think before we started working together, you were doing a lot of work on the what you call the death diaries. Um, and I just thought it was fantastic that you were trying to characterize who were the people who were dying and what were they being prescribed and what was going on um, is such important work. And it really laid the foundation for what we did to get together to try to change physician behavior. Right. And that's how you and I got connected. And so I, I reviewed all uh, deaths from medications. I didn't want to do just opioids. I wanted to look at everything that I potentially could be responsible as a doctor. What what, what I have, I mean, like I'm not prescribing heroin and methamphetamine, but I am prescribing Xanax and hydrocodone and clonazepam. So I wanted everything that people die of that that is labeled because of me and looked at their prescriptions and see if there was a match. Um, and that, that really was uh, eye-opening. And then you came in and brought that to another whole nother level. But how did you, and, and I don't think I ever really knew how how we first connected. Did you read about that or hear about that? Or is it something that you kind of wanted to do on your own? Oh, that yeah, that's an interesting story. So <clears throat> I had this idea. I wasn't aware of your death diaries work at the time, but I had this idea to, uh, you know, having worked as a clinical psychologist in a medical center, and working with medical records and working with other doctors and patients, um, sometimes, you know, psychologically distressed patients, sometimes they disappear and you wouldn't know what happened to them. Uh, there was no way to find out really from the medical record what happened to them because the U.S. healthcare system is so fragmented that every medical center has its own silo of records. Uh, and... So I kind of knew this was a big problem. And then talking with, as the opioids crisis was increasing and getting worse, and there were newspaper articles every week about how now, you know, 90 people a day are dying. Now 120 people a day are dying. And this is before fentanyl or anything like that. This was just prescription drugs. Um, you talk to physicians and they generally felt like it wasn't a big problem, but that it wasn't really a problem in their clinic. And it occurred to me that it, that that can't be the the majority of physicians can't believe that and that be true if it is a big national problem. It means that at least some of those clinics patients are not doing well or dying. And I thought it was important, you know, just it's a duty of a physician to learn about what happens to their patients so they can provide better care. And that wasn't really being provided to them 
by the medical system. The medical system wasn't really set up to give them any sort of feedback. So I had this idea that we should link these data from the medical examiner with the cures, and which is the state uh, uh, controlled substance monitoring database, and just let people know, not, not really blame them, but um, let them know that um, you know, this happened and you should be aware of it. And then that can become part of your clinical practice, you know, querying people about their use and trying to help them out, perhaps being more careful with their prescribing. Um, and so I had this idea and I, I, first I went around to find out, is anyone doing this? And I couldn't find that anyone was doing it. I did talk to a reporter uh, named Eric Iyer. He's now Famous at the time, he wasn't famous, but he he won the Pulitzer for his reporting on the opioid epidemic in West Virginia. And there was a uh, I can't remember if it was the DA or uh, a medical examiner who was interested in doing this in West Virginia, but they never did it. Um, so then I talked to um, someone we both know, Mike Minchin, who's a co-author on our paper. And he said, you have to talk to Ronit Lev. She's doing these death diaries, and this is the way to do this. So Mike really helped out a lot in making the connections uh, between myself, you, and uh, uh, John Lucas, who is, was at the time the deputy medical examiner at San Diego and now is the chief medical examiner in Los Angeles. Yeah, that was a great connection. It makes me think that whenever you think you have a brilliant idea, there's someone else in the world who also has the same idea. <laughs> but that that research, again, as a clinician, really changed me. I kept thinking, you know, what if it's my name next to somebody? And it, it really shook up our community because physicians, just like you said, it's like, okay, well, that's not my patients. And if it was my patients, because they didn't take their medications right, because I, you know, I'm practicing good medicine. And then doctors, you know, people don't realize that when patients die, they don't tell their doctor. The family doesn't call them. We have no idea. They just exactly what you said. They just disappear. So I'm wondering, was this research as an adventure for you as it was for me? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and in and, and a, a couple of different ways. One, I felt like at the time there were people like you, John Lucas, Mike Small, Acures, um, and a few other people, Kelly Pfeiffer, who's now at... Um, at the state of California mental health, um, who were very concerned about this problem and felt an urgency and, and that um, nothing was being done. And so it was great to pull together all of you guys and to, to work on this together and, and make it happen. And it felt like an adventure to me. I learned a lot. I learned a lot um, from the uh, cures data about kind of the process of death and how that ha unfolded over time for these people. Um, and I hope we communicated some of that in our publication. I know I got a lot of feedback from physicians after reading the article that, um, you know, they were surprised that patients near the end of life were going to so many different doctors um, and I, I have a different take on that. I don't really like the term doctor shopping because I think it puts a lot on the patient and as, a, as that's their fault or that they're doing something bad. I think what we learned from that about the, about the, the course, the natural course of their opioid use was that most of those patients started out dutifully taking opioids as their doctor had recommended. And then after some point in time, 
they developed an addiction and then needed more and more. And eventually, after maybe a year or two years, started visiting more and more doctors. So I, I don't like the narrative that, you know, patients in a premeditated way decide to go to five or six doctors to get opioids because they want to get high. I don't think that that's... It's not, but I remember you um, or the, our other partner in the research, uh, Andy uh, Wen, created this, I don't know if it's called a, a, it's a dynamic way of seeing things. And you could see, like he had little dots for patient and squares for doctors. And you could see as time went by, you'd have more of these webs and more webs meant more chances of death. That's right. So, and, and I thought that was just fascinating because what you could do is you can predict death and prevent it by, um, by showing those models. And, and I agree with you. I don't like doctor shopping because it, it, it's accusatory, right. but, but the definition that, you know, for um, the cures re definition for doctor shopping, they don't call it that is like, if you're seeing six Right. Well, no, it's, it's a risk factor. It's definitely a risk factor for death and we need to pay attention to it. But uh, yeah, so that, we created uh, a gold standard instead. One doctor, one pharmacist to coordinate all your controlled medications. Yeah. You need to have a quarterback that's for, right. your, for your prescriptions. That's right. I think right. That that's the way to go. And then I don't know if you remember one time we had a conference call because you had a statistical variant of a doctor who had like 10 deaths. Um, do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. Um, yeah, we had, uh, I think it was definitely an outlier. I mean, some physicians had four deaths, but there was a doctor that had uh, a lot of deaths. Um, and and um, yeah, so that that gave me pause in that conversation because when I did the research two years before, I had a doctor with four deaths and I thought he stood out and I thought, I don't know, I kept everything you know, confidential and any doctor names or pharmacists or patients, you know, that never went out to anywhere and I didn't act upon it. But I felt when I heard that this potential, this, I didn't know if it, who it was, now went up to 10 deaths. Now I felt I, don't, I was conflicted ethically that if I should say something or do something if some you know because that just really stood out and I drove down to the medical examiner where the database was and looked it up and as I was scrolling through the names of doctors I saw my name and uh, freaked out but you weren't the 10 that you were not the 10 you I was just not the 10 I had the one and my prescription was 18 months before the person died for for 10 Vicodins but it it still it alerted me. I went and looked right. at the case. It was a, actually, I remember it was a lady who had an orbital fracture and the plastic surgeon said, oh, you know, Ronit, can you please write for some, give her some pain meds? And I just did. And I didn't even notice that. And I wouldn't have a way to notice that she just got 150 pills. She didn't need my 10. Um, and I didn't kill her, but I didn't do something to prevent her from dying. Right. And that's the point. It's not that uh, it's your fault uh, or anything like that. It's that it's just as a clinician, you want to be aware of a lot of things. You want to know more about the patient than uh, is written down in the chart or, you know, what they tell you, things that just will help you out in making the right decision. And, and knowing that um, some of your patients are, you know, eventually dying from opioid overdose kind of gives you pause. It makes you think, 
you know, next time I'm prescribing 10 Vicodin, maybe I should talk to them about, are they receiving from other doctors or go check out cures? Um, right. Or you have a drug interaction with all the Xanax yeah, and your yeah. Suboxone and maybe we should taper you on something or let's maybe transfer you to Suboxone or, you know, that you're at risk. I, I had two of those patients last night in the emergency department. One guy just had 168 um, Vicodins from Kaiser, and he was there to get more from me because he didn't want to take them, so he threw them away. But now I'm supposed to give you more? Like Again, these are the things that I learned and I even right. wrote about how to say, well, you know, that's not safe for me to do now. If you want, I could transition you to Suboxone. We can get you treatment for opioid disorder because I think you have that. Um, mm -hmm. And then he he bolted. He didn't, mm -hmm. <laughs> he didn't want any of that. He wasn't ready. Yeah. He wasn't, he was not ready. Um, so yeah, so that research was definitely at a, a uh an adventure. And what did what did you come what did you take out of that from the results in that process? Yeah, so now so we've now had uh three papers published on this uh study. Uh, one was the original paper, and that the original paper showed that there was about a 10% decrease in opioid prescribing in the intervention group that received the letter uh, four months after receiving the letter. Um, and in addition, there were fewer patients on high-dose opioids and fewer new starts or new people started on opioids. To me, the new starts are really important because I think that's where people get hooked in and eventually go along the path, at least some of them. Upstream prevention rather Upstream. than Yeah, downstream. exactly. Um, so that was a nice paper. And since then, we've published two other papers. Um, some of them have been a little surprising, the results to me. One is that um, there were spillover effects. A spillover effect is when you do an intervention to tackle one problem, but it has, a, a, in this case, a positive effect on a related issue. and. Uh, uh, one of my students, Marcella Kelly, was interested in looking at benzodiazepine prescribing after um, uh, receiving the letter. You know, and the positive spillover in this case would be something like, well, I'm going to be generally more careful with all my scheduled drugs, not just with opioids now that I got this letter. And she found that that also significantly decreased um, and in a way that was... Uh, quite good that it um, resulted in uh, sort of moderate reductions amongst chronic users of Xanax, um, which is good because that, that can also lead to death. There's about 8,000 deaths a year from uh, benzodiazepines like Xanax. Um, and so keeping the people who are on it chronically, and guidelines don't recommend they be used chronically, but they are because people end up getting on them. Um, keeping that at bay is really important. So that was a that was a good study. I was happy with that result. And then today, our third paper comes out in JAMA Network Open, which looks at the long-term effects of the letter. So you got this letter, and uh, how did it affect you? Did it what? How does that work? Is it like a COVID shot where it only works for four months and you need a booster shot? <laughs> Or is it, do you internalize the letter and, and it changes you so that it becomes part of your practice for a long time? Um, and what we found, we, we compared the four, the one to four month change to the four to uh, 12 month change. 
So you, so you took f the 400 doctors who got a letter and compared them to 400 doctors who didn't get a letter? We did, exactly. We, we did that and, and we looked at um, the original science result one to four months in our statistical model, but then we added time five to 12 months to say, you know, well, what happened after that? So that was a separate like estimation was did they, so they were decreasing their prescribing more often or more at a greater rate in the letter group one to four months, but were they also doing that five to 12 months? And we found that they were, that in fact, there was no difference between one to four months and five to 12 months in the intervention group. They continued their uh, steady reduction of opioids at a higher rate, at a moderately higher rate than um, the control group, who was also reducing because there's a lot of pressure to reduce prescribing. Um, so what that means is that the letter had a lasting effect, that you only had to receive one letter to have that, an effect. That letter was a shock. It's like giving, you know, electricity to the heart, like, you know, V-fib, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the project, and you'll remember this, is that we had to figure out how to write that letter in a way that would appeal to physicians to bring them in, to make them want to be part of our group of people who are trying to make a difference and make a change, to not push them away and just knowing that your patient died, you're right, it is like a shock. And I think we all felt we don't need any harsh language in here. We don't need, what we needed was very empathetic language. We told them that uh, we know it's difficult to learn about your patient's death. Come and join us and help uh, fight this by using cures, doing following the CDC guidelines. So I felt like we tried to make them part of the in-group. We didn't try to ostracize them and say, oh, you're a bad doctor. Just like, hey, this happened. And yes, it's a shock and we understand, but we'd like you to join us and help. And I think that was really important. We I remember our them, program office. Them, the letter referred them to a website that had educational information. And Yeah, it, we referred them not only to the C CDC guidelines, but to the San Diego Safe Prescribing uh, Group, which maintained a lot of uh, safe prescribing uh, materials. Yeah. Um, and I remember our program officer was like, I didn't know how you were going to do it. Write, write that letter in a way that that sounded uh, kind, but you did it. So, uh, Yeah, I think most people who got our letter, um, you know, were, were understanding and, and, yeah. and it, it, you know, gave them pause. And I think it did. It gave them like a shock. Of, yeah. And, you know, that's people don't understand as a doctor taking care of patients, not like a business. It, it's, it, her, it's your soul, right? That's her, like, you'd never want to hurt anybody. And you, you know, it, it, uh, really affects us emotionally, um, right. uh, to have that. So. And I think part of the shock is not, uh, so much the letter as it is the way the medical system is set up. It, it sort of unintentionally shields doctors from learning about these outcomes because the healthcare system is so fragmented and patients just disappear, you just don't get the information. So it's kind of like you're waking up to this fact. You're like, wow, this really happened. This is reality. This really happened in my practice. Yeah. Um, and that's important. So I, I learned a lot about, because I'm always I'm thinking of how to fix things upstream. Um, and and I, I, you know how you, you deal with infectious disease a lot and publish about that, right? And every year we get an anti 
antibiotic antibiotic gram, right, of what uh, antibiotics work for certain um, infections or bacteria where there's resistance, and it gives a, an annual guide to physicians on how to prescribe because the, the it changes from year to year. One year, E. coli, um, it's SEPTRA works, and the next year you need to use Keflex, a different antibiotic. So, uh, And it changes, and that's published, and we use that as a guide. I thought this information from the medical examiner can be used in the same way as we have that information for antibiotics because risks of certain medications change from from year to year. So when we studied it, I learned that 90% of everybody who died had a, was it on a chronic um, prescription for three months or more. 96%. That's the high-risk group. That's the people you need to be watching, right? I learned that 80% died of a cocktail, not just one drug. If it was right. one drug, it was methadone. So we got to like, be careful with the, our methadones. I saw opioid and benzodiazepines was 50% of everyone who, who dies. It's like, okay, that's our high risk group. And, um, and surprisingly, when I looked at the quote unquote doctor shoppers, we have to, maybe it's, we need a different word for it, but whatever that definition is of going to more than, you know, more than, I think our definition was more than four doctors and more than four pharmacies. Um, they were not the majority. They were very much at risk, but they were 28% of the total, but they consumed half of all the drugs. So again, mm -hmm. another one. But uh, what do you think, because you've studied on a high level research, both infectious disease and uh, medication death, deaths. What do you think of applying the analogy? I, I always tell my listeners know that I'm jealous of like Shigella and diarrhea and COVID because they get all the attention. Um, <laughs> um, but I think some of these models can apply. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think there's a lot to be done in antibiotics and um, some of the uh, adverse outcomes, the severe adverse outcomes are more rare. Um, certainly not, some of the adverse outcomes are not rare. Um, but, you know, one example I think is with, in pediatrics with ear infections. So, um, it turns out that, um, 70% of children who've had C. diff, which is an infection, um, brought on, but it's an opportunistic bacteria that, that sort of invades the gut. It's always there. We all have it, but it sort of takes over the gut after antibiotics um, and it has some toxicity to it. Um, it creates, you know, diarrhea, upset stomach. It can cause death in, um, in people who are not healthy. Um, and so it's very dangerous and it's disruptive to children because they're trying to grow and get nutrition and, um, and it, it can be bad for them. But it turns out that of children who have C. diff, 70% were given an antibiotic for an ear infection 10, uh, nine to 11 weeks prior. And so that's something that's important to know. I think doctors should know, hey, you gave this for an ear infection and um, the child got C. diff. Um, and so that, you know, that type of thing might give them pause and say, hey, let's wait a week, see how the ear improves or let's do try this other strategy. Um, yeah, I think a lot of this can be applied. And there's a lot of really important work going on in antibiotics about um, trying not to use these highly potent um, specific antibiotics, or I'm sorry, the general antibiotics that, that kill everything and work with the more uh, general antibiotics, shorter courses of antibiotics that we don't need the longer courses. And, and I'm not an expert in this. I'm not, um, 
an ID doctor, but I know ID doctors who are pushing this uh, based on the evidence. And so I think a lot of stuff that's done in medicine is, is based on practice uh, or sort of a habit that um, they said, well, you know, one of the, uh, Brad Spielberg, who's a, a, a well-known ID doctor, talks about how, why are a lot of therapies a week long? Well, it's because there was a Roman emperor who, who decreed that a week would have seven days and we would, you know, have this thing called a week. Um, and some courses of antibiotics don't have to be that long. We just kind of arbitrarily pick that because it fits within our framework of how we think about time. So I think there's a lot that can be done in notifying people of uh, bad outcomes that could improve medicine, make physicians more rational. You know, the other intervention that, you know, we give the antibiotic gram, and, and I don't know if you've ever done this, we measure whether doctors follow <clears throat> the change in antibiotics. And I'd like to do the same thing with, with uh, drugs is show, you know, at least once a year, give the medical community, these are the drugs that are in the community, both a medical examiner, what is being seized by a sheriff's department, uh, be because we don't know that there are all these methamphetamines and methamphetamines, opioids, and, right. and with what, and this is because of that, kind of like we did with the death diaries, um, and because of that, this is what you should do, give naloxone to anybody who uses any drugs, not just opioids, um, and refer for treatment, and here's a phone number, um, and beware of these, you know, medication combinations. Yeah, I think that that's the next step that we really need to address, and, and it, it has to do with the fentanyl crisis. So we have, we have these twin epidemics of prescription drugs and then fentanyl. And fentanyl has now overshadowed prescription drug deaths because it's such a potent- By a lot, right? We were freaking out by the prescriptions deaths, you know, what, what you were saying, you know, oh, 100 a day. Now it's like, ah, you know, 600 right. so, a day. Exactly, it's crazy. And, um, but it turns out that nationally about half the people who die of a fentanyl overdose are also getting a prescription drug. So there's an opportunity for physicians to talk to patients, to do screenings, to determine if they need naloxone, to determine if they need suboxone um, or other medication-assisted therapy. And so I think that's really the next step is to tie these outcomes that have to do with illicit fentanyl with visits that happen at the doctor's office and say, hey, you know, some of your so patients- I, I didn't know that. 50% um, of everyone who dies of a fentanyl overdose was given a prescription? As of 2020, yeah, in the C and with CDC data, yeah. That's, that's, that's important to know. And, yeah, I mean, it's and, a polysubstance problem. And is it a drug of abuse or is that 50% also getting Suboxone, which is part of their treatment, but they- And that excludes Suboxone as far as I know. Yeah, that's, um, um, it, it's really, you know, the- Drug use, it's really a polysubstance epidemic, right. methamphetamine, fentanyl, right. prescription drugs. And we have these nice categories where we're, you know, like, oh, you know, we, we you know, these are prescription drugs and these are, but a lot of the people who are using drugs are, are going to multiple sources and getting. Right. They die of a cocktail. Not, yeah. And we, we showed that 80% die of a cocktail, not just one drug. Yeah. So. There still are opportunities, even in the illicit space, for physicians to have an impact because many of their patients they may not be aware are at risk for fentanyl overdose because they're using illicit drugs. Wow. 
I think that's an important public health message, right? 50% of people who die or went to their doctor for something. I wonder if you have more details on that so we could educate that and therefore you should do well, I think, ABC. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm to be clear, I'm not 100% sure that they, that they got the prescription medication at a visit or if that includes uh, medications that were diverted. Uh, but at any rate, the point is, is that the prescription drugs are playing a role and there's opportunities to. Exactly. Know, Just yeah. like that, my case example that I said, where my patient died, I, I didn't kill her with my 15 Vicodin, but I didn't intervene to someone who was at risk. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and people, doctors would be, well, how could I, what could I do? I'm not the one prescribing them, but I could have had at least for my conscious, at least have a conversation that like, I'm worried about you. Um, exactly. Medications. Yeah. Um, just, you know, at least that I could say, I'm worried about you. These companies, you know, have seen people who died from this and here, you know, you can get treatment for that or help with that. Um, the but problem it, is the help is different, different place, maybe with the doctor who's giving her, right? Like I, I had a, a lady who's getting, you know, all these Xanaxes, one milligram, three times a day, and she's still running out, you know, mm. weeks ahead of time. And it's like, mm. how do I make that intervention for the, but it's possible. Right. Yeah, it is possible. And physicians are the gatekeepers for addiction treatment, med medication assisted therapies. And so they need to find creative ways to know when the patients that come to their visits or people in the household even, um, yeah our risk and how they can help. That that research we did together, again, is amazing. And you got it published with Science Magazine, very prestigious. And you were saying, okay, let's start with the highest level magazine possible. We'll go from there. And it, it worked. It not only worked, but you got the eye of Dr. Nora Wolkoff, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, who wrote a commentary on our research. And she thought it was brilliant. Um, so that was, that was nice to, that nice to have her write that and, uh, to explain to others what we did. I thought and it, was... it got me a lot of brownie points because when I met her in person and she said, you know, there's someone who did this article in San Diego on, and letters to the medical examiner. I said, yeah, that was me. And you got, that was you. I didn't know. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah. So I got you, you helped me out with that. Um, Natalie is a a uh, physician assistant that I work with. She's amazing in the emergency department. And she learned about the death diaries and she wanted to know in 2015, we had 800 physicians, that's a heck of a lot, who prescribed to people who died within one year. And is that still a problem? Um, so you did research, right? Looking and showing that the 400, half of them, it really, they prescribe less. But is it a problem today? Do we still need to be sending out these letters? Um, I think the letters need, need to change. And I think, uh, I think it's less of a problem today. I think there's been a lot of pressure on physicians to prescribe fewer opioids. We're still at a higher level than we were prior to Oxycontin being released. So in the 1990s, you were pretty safe going to the doctor. They were very concerned, mid-1990s, were very concerned about opioids and how many they gave you, and um, they were rather stingy with them. Well, there was also this triplicate prescriptions, right? You could right. not you could not write for oxycodone. 
uh, unless you had one of these uh, expensive, you know, triplicate prescriptions, forms. triplicate yeah. forms that you paid for, and you had to keep records of them for many years. So um, unless you had one of those, you couldn't you couldn't prescribe. I remember working in the hospital and I wanted to have one of these triplicates. So I went, you know, I wanted to always be able to help. And so I'd have like an oncologist come to me in the middle of my shift and say, Hey, could you write my patient some morphine? He can't get it. You know? And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. That's why I did it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, that's another aspect of behavioral economics, which is really interesting. This idea of sludge so the triplicate form created a lot of sludge that made it harder to prescribe controlled substances. And I wrote an op-ed with an economist uh, from Finland uh, named Lisa Lane. And um, it was after this debacle that happened uh, with a some collusion between uh, uh, opioid uh, manufacturer and a medical uh, electronic medical records company where they wanted to make prescribing easier by coming up with pain plans for people. And they paid the, the uh, electronic medical record company a lot of money to build in these pain plans that would go out to everybody and it increased prescribing. But it also turned out that in Finland, they had something similar to the triplicate system that made it very hard to prescribe. And it was all written by hand and records had to be kept. And then the government decided to streamline the process and to make it more effortless to prescribe just like all of medicine they thought well technology's coming and we need to update we need to move forward and update and so uh, they made controlled substance prescribing in finland very easy you know press a couple buttons and you're done and the result of that was more ben more benzodiazepine deaths more um uh uh, addiction and, and more suicide by benzodiazepine amongst youth. So this idea of sludge is important too, that sometimes policies that seem like a bureaucratic burden are actually helping hold back the dam and making it uh, harder for bad things to happen. And so I'm not against the triplicate prescribing. <laughs> I think it's something that can help make things uh, uh, a lot safer for, for patients. Right. I mean, yeah, what we, we did, and, and we saw that effect overnight, right? Overnight, yeah. there was no one prescribing oxycodone, no deaths. And then as soon as they got rid of the triplicate, let's guess what? Oxycodone's right up top of there. And because we also got a message of social norm, like this is what they want us to do. The government wants us to push these drugs. They're making us take pain management cores. You know, we were we were coerced. Uh, and uh, to prescribe. And so you make me think of something new. So just recently, hot off the press, Congress passed the MAT Act. And what that does is it gets rid of the X waiver for prescribing buprenorphine. Yay, great, right? We always was X the X waiver, this is stupid. Um, we don't need it. Um, and what the administration the Trump administration actually got rid of both the, the, the X waiver and the eight hour education and said, you know, now everybody could prescribe. The Biden administration came in and said, no, 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 that's not how you do business. Reversed everything and kept the X waiver, got rid of the eight hours of education, kept the X waiver. So now that was kind of okay. You had to, you know, within two minutes, you would have to go to the government website 
register, and now you have an X waiver. So you know, really, all our doctors are X waivered in the emergency department, and I like every doctor in the country. It's really you could spend two minutes and get online and do this. It's still a barrier. What this MAT Act just did. I think it's horrible, but I want to know your reaction. People mm-hmm. don't agree with me. But they put in the eight-hour education back in and got rid of the X waiver. Like, really? Do you not know how doctors think? Like, we don't want an extra click in our work. If I need to click two more clicks, I'm not going to prescribe, right? Or I'm not going to do that. Now you want me to take eight hours of I don't even know what you're going to ask me to to teach yeah. me about. It'll be whatever social agenda you have or whatever. You know, who knows? Or is it? When government meddles in medicine like that, it's just not good. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that that's an area where we need less sludge is uh, buprenorphine prescribing. And they just created eight hours eight hours of sludge. I need to learn that from you. So it's called sludge. And does it mean like to go slow, or does it is it out? Yeah, of it's like molasses. Like it's now becomes harder to do to prescribe yeah. buprenorphine because you got to do these eight hours of administrative. Yeah. And, and, and that's sludge, how Congress works. They thought sludge can be bad depending on how it's applied, right? And in this case, it's 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 potentially bad because it'll discourage doctors from being able to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and that's been a longstanding problem. And there's many problems associated with doctors uh, getting doctors to prescribe buprenorphine. So some of it is that doctors um, they have their set practices and. A lot of them don't really want to work with a a difficult population or change the the makeup of their cohort. And so they'll get the X waiver and then they won't prescribe. We see a lot of doctors get the X waiver when when it was available and then they would never use it or they would rarely use it. Uh, So there's a lot of inertia around like, there's a lot that has to be done to use the X waiver or to, I mean, to uh, change your practice to use it. And there's a lot of effort that has to go into that and and you're actually changing who you're treating and all that sort of stuff. There's been a push to use, to distribute uh, buprenorphine in the community to get people kind of started on it through emergency departments. There was a big study at Yale that showed that you get a lot of people on buprenorphine. Um, But there's always been this issue of follow-up. You know, who's gonna follow up with this patient and provide continued prescriptions? I actually think that telemedicine might be a way to do that, that if once someone's been evaluated carefully in person and has received an initial prescription, they should be able to get refills through telemedicine. Um, And there's been waivers during the pandemic for scheduled drug prescribing uh, and telemedicine that I think have had a negative effect. So there's been companies like Cerebral that have been prescribing too many ADHD medications, and there's a lot of podcasts and articles written about cerebral and, and and they appear to be in a lot of trouble for doing this. But there's the positive side, which is that buprenorphine could be used through telemedicine as a way for people to regularly get their medicine. So that would be a way to reduce sludge, I think. And then those doctors wouldn't have to worry about becoming, you know, every doctor doesn't have to become an, a, a mini addiction psychiatrist. That's, I think, what the idea originally was. I think we can find ways to get people these prescriptions you need it that that don't require that. Right. And you could, you know, somebody has very complicated diabetes or high blood pressure, right? You'll go to the cardiologist who will help adjust those cardiac meds, but they'll they'll be continued by the primary care doctor. 
right? Or you'd go to the endocrinologist to help fix your, you know, and really get your diabetes under control because it's a difficult case. But then your primary care doctor continues that. And that's the model I see working yes. with addiction. Yeah, that's fantastic. Right. That it's really not that these, we need to get a lot of people started on these medications and manage properly and then kick it back to the primary care doctor. Don't make them do eight hours of education, but yeah. for them to manage I think so, someone needs to do the study of how many doctors signed up to be to give to do buprenorphine before this MAT act and how many after. And I think, yeah. you know, they're going to oh, right. show that, that they just created sludge. You taught me a new yeah. word. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, so what other what lessons can we learn also from from? the research that you did on the current opioid crisis. Like you studied prescription opioids. I would say we no longer have that as an epidemic. Um, like you said, it's not baseline to opioids to what it was in the 90s, but maybe we were under-prescribing then. Um, but we've greatly reduced, reduced it so much that IQVIA, that studies the number of opioids that are prescribed every year, are no longer even tracking that because it's not a problem enough for them to track. Um, but what can we learn from that whole experience um, to our current problem with fentanyl? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I think uh, the, the big issue now is, is how, do you, how do you interface physicians who are kind of the gatekeepers for medication-assisted therapy with the people who need it? And we've talked a lot about that. One is through emergency departments getting people started on buprenorphine. It's not always easy getting people started on buprenorphine. There are different ways to do it. And um, some people believe you need to, you know, bring people almost to, to a quasi withdrawal level and then start them on the buprenorphine uh, for safety reasons. I've also heard from some emergency docs, and I don't know if you've experienced this down in San Diego, where I know there's a huge, you know, fentanyl distribution problem. Um, it's harder to start people on buprenorphine, uh, because fentanyl now is so powerful and like, where do you start at what starting dose do you use? I don't know if, if you've encountered that or if your colleagues, so there, there is a controversy on that. Like, do you start the regular dose of eight milligrams and go from there and go up? I've heard both sides like, oh, you have to do microdosing if they're still on it and then go up or no, we're going to hit them big with 24. So I've heard both ends. Yeah. And as a busy ER doctor who, you know, I've just been doing the regular amount on everyone uh -huh. and haven't heard feedback that that's not a problem, that that's not good. I have, you know, I've, right. I've had people who say, I don't want to be on buprenorphine. I don't like it. It doesn't work for me. Uh, I think they still are seeking opioids and they don't want that aloxone. They're still in the denial or maybe they did have a bad experience. Right. Um, right. Well, so there, so there you've hit on the the nail on the head of what I think we can learn and what can be done. So this is this crisis is so dynamic with changes to the drugs that are being used and the 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 potency of the drugs. You know, now we're dealing with people in these really highly potent drugs, um, and physicians themselves are unclear. Like, do I microdose? Do I uh, hit them with a lot? Do I do the average? And if you prescribe a scheduled drug, a buprenorphine as a scheduled drug, even though it's a medication-assisted therapy, now we can track outcomes and see, you know, are medical examiners seeing any of your patients come back 
is are there adjustments to your dosing that can be done? Can you get feedback on uh, how the patient is doing? Um, can we do can we trace backwards from a person's death and try to learn whether they were able to fall into some type of continuity of care for buprenorphine or not? And where are the where are the gaps? So if you have a we can do that. I'm sure Dr. Lucas with in LA would be looking to add it. And then Dr. Campman, our medical examiner in San Diego, would be really into that as well. So we'd be happy to to participate in a way to to look at that. We could look at all buprenorphine deaths. And I think at the time there were maybe like only four total. So now we could see if we're seeing that as well. Right. Or it, I wouldn't even call them buprenorphine deaths, but people who were prescribed buprenorphine maybe they weren't taking it, maybe they stopped taking it or couldn't get refills. Oh, so yeah. we'd be giving, we'd be doing the opposite. So with, with our study, we took a list of people who died in San yeah. Diego and then gave the data to Cures. Now we'd be working the other way around, asking Cures to give us data. Yeah, to people who died of fentanyl and who had been given a buprenorphine prescription, what, what failed? What was the failure points in that? Yeah, we could definitely do that. That'd be interesting. Um, well, I learned, that's interesting, that's not where I was taking out of the whole opioid crisis. I, I feel like we, we had a problem. The supply chain was a medical community. We ended the crisis through the supply chain. We didn't end it through the treatment aspect. Like, we had patients with a bucket of medications, and it's like, what am I going to do? I'm just, my job is to just to keep you alive. I don't, you know, just to, I'm not going to fix this, but I at least want to keep right. you alive. I feel like that's what uh, opiate use disorder treatment is. And so for me, if I want to end, really end the fentanyl crisis, I have to look at the supply part. And and the supply part is not the medical community. It's China and Mexico and going upstream like that, which is not our specialty, right? We're, you know, in the medical community. But I think the answer is there. Declaring fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction, making, you know, drug dealers and that whole economic market of drug sales not so lucrative. You know, we could do that if we wanted to. Um, One thing that discourages me about uh, the addiction policy field is that there seems to be two camps and one camp so, uh, basically basically wants everyone to just be able to use drugs and to seek treatment when they're ready. And then the other camp wants to do interdiction and, um, you know, come down hard on China and Mexico. And that's the answer. And I think it's probably 50 or 60 things we need to do to, to address this problem. Uh, and those are just two things and neither of them are going to be uh, deal breakers, but they're very, they're both very important. Right. So I think it's very important that we that we try to restrict supply and we put some pressure on that. But it's also important that we, um, you know, don't stigmatize drug use and help people seek treatment and and understand that they can be in a safe place and receive treatment. So, you know, stigma is is interesting because um, everyone who talks about drugs, it's like, oh, we need to eliminate the stigma and stigma towards a human being is 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 bad, and as as a physician, you you should never do that to anybody. If somebody is is smoking cigarettes, they're not a bad human being, right? They have an addiction, that right? You be your friend, but that act of smoking is not good, and it's stigmatized, and that's how we got people to smoke less. And if right. if you're on the camp of well, anyone can use drugs, 
we should not stigmatize people. We should not stigmatize the people who use drugs. But yeah, using fentanyl, that's not good. That's not the social norm we want to create in our society or for our children or for our future. I don't, I don't think so. Um, yeah, uh, I, uh, I would say pretty much the same thing that there's a distinction between stigmatizing a person and stigmatizing uh, a drug use or, or behavior. Um, and that we do have to, you know, it, it doesn't help the opioids crisis to say that opioids are uh, wonderful medicine and we should be prescribing more of them if we need to. We need to recognize that they are also a dangerous medicine and that, that opioid use can be problematic and deadly and um, the person using them needs help. And um, if you actually look at what Purdue Pharma did, they tried to stigmatize the user and say that the drugs were were good. That you know, oh, these, there are some bad people and they're using these drugs, and we just need to get some predictive algorithms together and figure out who they are, so we can not let them use it and let everyone else use it. When in fact, you know, most people, if they're um, exposed to opioids long enough and in, and in high enough doses, will eventually form some type of problem with them. So, and yeah, the other I thing that, that they uh, did is created terminology, right? Like you are, I'm just dependent. I'm not addicted. But one thing I learned from our research is like, you know, when you're dead, it doesn't matter if you were dependent or addicted. It's the dose that you got that killed you. That's right. There's, um, there's a, it's a, it's a gray area between dependence and addiction. A lot of people won't recognize that. But if you talk to people who were, who, 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 went into heavy use and addiction. A lot of them, for a lot of them, there was a period where it was hard to tell if they were just dependent or addicted. Um, those are human constructs and distinctions that we make. Uh, they're not, you know, they're, they're negotiated amongst people. They're not some sort of objective fact, those, those, those terms dependent and addicted. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, we need to pay attention to both, I think. Interesting. Now, I don't know if you know that about the same time we sent our letters, unbeknownst to us, the state of California, the Medical Board of California, sent letters to 500 different doctors based on medical examiner data, accusing them of killing their patients and threatening their license, and freaked yes. out the entire medical population, <laughs> all the doctors in California to not prescribing. And I guess I will say this on the podcast that I believe the medical board of California has blood on their hands because when they cut off patients who were in chronic pain and scared the crap out of doctors from prescribing any pain medications, people committed suicide and they died literally because of this policy and those letters that they wrote. And then I don't know if you got pushed back, but I got people angry at me because they mixed up our really nice, beautiful letters with the crappy ones from the medical board. Yeah, there's a journalist, Cheryl Clark, who wrote a piece in MedPage Today in 2020 about contrasting our letter to the uh, medical board's letter and contrasting the outcomes. And I thought it was really well done. Um, I haven't gotten anyone mixing that up, um, although I, I suppose it could happen. But I think it points to the fact that we don't want to accuse doctors or threaten them, that that just makes people defensive, that, you know, a lot of people 
are caught up in prescribe or were caught up in prescribing opioids because that they were told that that was the best thing to do um, through, you know, pain is the fifth vital sign and a lot of these initiatives that were really being funded by industry. Um, and so they're not, you know, bad actors and they just need more information and they need, and it needs to be handled carefully and in a kind way. And I don't think the medical board, their role is really not to address the, the average prescriber. Their role is to address with address a very small number of bad actors um, in medicine. There will always be a few, um, and so for them to send out a, a, you know hundreds of letters just doesn't make sense to me. The letters from the medical board of California did cause a, a lot of damage and fear, and they were unfairly sent because uh, for them to send a letter from the medical examiner. Um, it had to be, the death certificate had to be signed by a doctor. Well, there's only like four counties in all of California that have a, a physician sign them. Most of them, it's a sheriff or non-medical. So doctors in San Diego and Los Angeles, where we have medical examiners, were disproportionately getting letters and their mm -hmm. license threatened compared to other parts of the state. So that, that was bad, and I'm glad they finally stopped. Um Right. They should have used real researchers in doing things like that. <laughs> well, you know, there have been a few places that have consulted with us about these letters. And I know the state of Kentucky um, has sent them out. The city of Baltimore, their opioid task force uh, sent the letters. New York State. New York, New York, yeah. New York, yeah. Yeah. That, that was so cool. Yeah. We were, nice we were the first in the country. Yeah. When people, you know, take the time to talk to you about how do you how do I do this right? because the details of implementing something like this really matter. Yeah. And our medical examiner wants to do that, again, going back to Natalie's question, um, to send letters in there, but they don't have that many. Um, mm -hmm. um, so they actually have, I think, funding to do these letter project again. So maybe if you think of a creative way to redo that, but they only have a handful. There's not that yeah, well, I think now the, the I think, well, in talking to Dr. Lucas about this, there's a, a couple of issues. One is that often because the fentanyl crisis has gotten so big, a lot of times medical examiners will, will now first test for fentanyl. I remember when we were doing this, that was the last test they do. Right. But now they'll first test for fentanyl and then they go, oh, we're done, fentanyl. Um, oh, so, we don't do that. We do everything. Okay, you do everything. Okay, yeah. well, that's good to hear. Um, I think extending it to illicit drugs, though, and and looking to see if they have received any scheduled drugs along with that is just important for physicians to know, so that they know, like, well, some of your patients are using fentanyl, and it's something that you need to consider. That's that's like when we did our research. Remember, a medical examiner didn't have the manpower to run a cures report on all deaths. And mm -hmm. so they they don't do that. They don't run a prescription history on all the deaths anymore. They're too overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but if we had a project, maybe they we can get them. Right. Ready. I think that's what needs to be that, that that. So how are they identifying the deaths then? Um, just by toxicology. Oh, right. See, I think that's going to come up with a very small number as compared to if you were to put the person's name in cures and identify. Uh, who is prescribing to them. Right. Yeah. Right. We, but we can, I don't know, if we want to, to have a conversation with him to do something, I bet we can do something. Sure. Um, 
Let me pick your brain about other research potential collaborations. I called you a few months ago, or was it last year, where I did a baby study. You do like these massive, you know, science journal studies. But I just a little study um, just to see if people want to know about uh, marijuana and drug interactions with their prescriptions. So we went to 17 different pharmacies, sent out 10,000 info cards, got feedback from, I don't maybe less than 10%. I'm told it's good for such surveys that just go to general public, but it's a small number. But over 90% of everyone wants this information and thought it was important. Um, Great. And, um, and I'm and actually going to um, talk to the legislator about asking the Medical Board of California to start doing this on a regular basis. Like you're getting um, information about, you know, don't use with alcohol, don't use with grapefruit juice. Well, if you're using certain drugs, especially blood thinners, you should not be using them with marijuana products because that can increase your chance of bleeding. And that has mm -hmm. happened. Um, and so I want to pick your brain on, is there anything that you see from that idea that you can do on a larger scale? Uh, I think that that's uh, really interesting. I think there. I think there's one state, and I'm blanking on the state. I'm not sure if it's Massachusetts. There's one state that requires dispensaries to enter data into the prescription drug monitoring. Oh, there's about eight eight states. Oh, there's eight states. Yeah, okay. that require they treat marijuana as a medicine. So if you're going to put right. opioids and Xanax on the prescription drug monitoring system then you might, and you're calling it medical marijuana, not the recreational one, then that goes in the database as well. Yeah. And I think that that needs to happen nationally for all uh, prescription drug monitoring databases yes. so that we can begin to do things like look at outcomes and, and look at uh, interactions like that. And of course, you're right. If we're doing this for grape juice or for grapefruit juice, why <laughs> certainly we should be doing it for marijuana. This is not a big ask. Um, there will be interactions with uh, between marijuana and other drugs. Um, and because the use of marijuana is increasing uh, because of le because of uh, legalization, mm -hmm. um, it's important that we you know look to it's just like we do with alcohol, right? If you don't take this with alcohol or we need to be monitoring that more closely. Right. Yeah. So maybe there's a way to, to do that. So why not put that idea in your head? The other idea in your head, if to, to if you want to measure outcomes, uh, starting this year, January 1st, um, all hospitals in California are required to include fentanyl whenever they order a uh, drug screen. I'm proud of that. That's the first piece of legislation I ever wrote. And it, it passed. Oh, congratulations. Um, and we're the first in the nation to do that. So I don't know if you are, have a way of measuring outcomes like, okay, so now we're getting, does that change behavior? Like, I think it does. Um, I don't know if it does change behavior in a way where we could measure it or you could measure it. Um, but I think it, when, when I tell a patient or even me as a doctor, it's like, oh, it's positive for fentanyl. I'm going to do naloxone now. I'm going to tell a the patient they're in danger. And then the patient may be like, well, some of them are using fentanyl, so they know and they don't care. But some of them is like, well, that's not what I meant. You know, I swear it was only marijuana. It was only marijuana. It's like, well, maybe there was fentanyl and residue in the bong. Um, but it makes changes there. I mean, I don't know if you think of a way. I'm just putting these ideas in your head to think if there's ways of measuring changes of behavior based on this new law. 
so we have looked at um that that's really interesting so um you know the the law that that passed in california about um having to counsel patients on naloxone and um opioid risk we looked at that at kaiser permanente and we published that last year and we did like a pre-post analysis so it's not randomized or anything um, but we found huge changes. What Kaiser did was try to abide by the law by building electronic health record screens that would do everything that the physician had to do who, to abide by the law. And um, so it did create some sludge, but also um, it also gave us an opportunity so that all Kaiser physicians, then we could look to see pre and post what happened with their naloxone prescribing, what happened with other stuff. And we found that it the, the it hadn't, although it wasn't intended to reduce opioid prescribing, it did have an effect making opioid prescribing harder. Physicians became more thoughtful and they're like, hmm, you know, I have to put in all this effort now to do this. Maybe I could try another treatment. Um, so it had some effect on that. It also had an, it had a huge effect on naloxone, increasing naloxone prescriptions dramatically. Um, so I think uh, the drug testing thing is uh, something that's interesting from the standpoint of physician order entry. And if we can find um, medical systems that, that have decided to automate this process, uh, maybe versus ones who haven't, and see how it changes the course of care for patients. Um, so if, if the, I'm, I'm sure that some big organizations are just automatically ordering fentanyl in the electronic health record with any drug screen, where well, they should they they theoretically one hundred percent of them are doing that, right? Theoretically, but or they're breaking the law, right? Exactly. Well, that was Kaiser's position with the the naloxone law was um, that they were going to do make it automatic so that they would never be breaking the law. But I think some smaller organizations may not have the resources to program that, and uh, you could look and compare outcomes between organizations if they were closely matched with the, the Kaiser patient population. Um, or you can just look pre-post and see how it, how it changes outcomes. It would be interesting to see, um, you know, because of drug stigma, there is also the potential that maybe for some people that it could decrease ordering talk screens. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the case. That's an empirical question. We could look to see what happens? I'd be more interested. My hope would be that it wouldn't decrease talk screens, but that it would encourage. Uh, I don't think talk screens because you're the biggest sludge in ordering a talk screen is getting someone to pee. They don't yeah. pee readily, and sometimes we order it, and it just never happens because we're not. Happens, yeah, yeah. You know, if if you don't really want to give a urine, we're not the police, so if you don't want to do that, that we. But if you're like unconscious and we're working up altered mental status for any reason, then and you're checking for all these other drugs, why would you not check for fentanyl? Right, right, good. Right, we we're using it diagnostically and and therapeutically for change. Right. Yeah. And then the other final thing I want to pick your brain on is I worked on a research project with the University of Maryland on emergency department drug surveillance. And um, we created this amazing database from all those scripts hospitals looking at the drug screens. So actually you could use our data, uh, talk screens over the years, and it's available online. But what I asked that was different than the other hospitals that were collecting this data is I wanted to understand the intersection with mental health and drugs. So in our emergency department, we have patients who are waiting for months 
nobody's studying them. Um, but they're sitting there for maybe a month or, you know, you'll see like 600 hours in the emergency department. And my theory is that a percentage of them are there because they're detoxing from drugs. And that detoxing um, and clearing your mental health from alcohol happens faster than, you know, marijuana and, and uh, which may be faster than methamphetamine. And, and that we, I have that data, but I don't have anyone to like, do a deep dive and look at that answer, which is, I think, the greatest public health problem that we have in the emergency departments across the United States today is boarding of psychiatric patients, and a percentage of them are there because their 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 drugs are causing a mental health crisis. So, so are you saying that they don't get a they don't get a hospital bed or a, a inpatient psychiatric bed either? Yeah. But the, the sitting in the emergency department taking up a bed for hours and hours and hours. And days and days. And, and days. days and days and days. Interesting. Yeah. Um, right. It would be interesting to find out about those people. Is it all consecutive or is it, are they coming back Same, again? They're, no, they're living in the ER. They're brushing their teeth oh, and that's fascinating. in their room. That yeah. is fascinating. I was unaware of this. Yeah. That is our biggest problem um, everywhere in the country. Right, and you and you want to characterize these patients and understand who are these patients and why are they there? Do they right, because then you can make smart public health policies. Like, right. is this you know here are people who need to detoxify from drugs? Here's real mental health. We need to create more beds. We need to well, we obviously do because they're living in there. But we could better define what kind of beds and where is this problem coming from? And and um, do we have more like studies in Europe have shown mm-hmm. increase? amount of schizophrenia and chronic psychosis associated in cities where they have more high potency THC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we haven't mm-hmm. done such a dive so much in the United States, but but we could look at where the problem is at its peak. And I think it's peaking like every th- problem in society in the emergency departments. That's fascinating. That'd be That'd be a great study. We should talk more about it. All right. So tell us what you are working on now. What is making you excited? Um, so, uh, well, we've, um, we're doing a lot of studies with the electronic health record and trying to change physician behavior within the electronic health record through these different types of nudges. Besides me just smashing it with a hammer because I get so frustrated. <laughs> well, you know, what we're trying to do Physicians rightfully complained about the electronic health record, and and they talk a lot about alert fatigue, that they get all these alerts. Um, what we're trying to do is make sort of lasting change with the electronic health record. So one problem with the way that alerts are presented is that you have to see them over. They're mostly just reminders, right, or just reminding you about drug interactions or reminding you to do certain things. And because of that, you just see them over and over and over. And if you're not changing your behavior, then you're just going to continue to see them and then there'll be more alerts. And so the alerts really have to be effective at changing your behavior. It's not enough just that you present them to the person. So we've been working on different ways to help clinicians change their behavior in a lasting way uh, through the alerts. And um, if you think about our letters project, now we know you just send one letter and then it has this lasting effect. They internalize it. They change their practice. It sort of sets them off on a new course. And so we've been working on these uh, clinical justification alerts in different 
areas, um, ranging from geriatric care to primary care. Um, to, can, you, can you give us an example? Like, so, yeah, for example, so, just in a, so um, a lot of times when you're working in a gray area in medicine, um, you might, you may say like, you know, should I prescribe this antibiotic? Should I not? Well, I think I'll just do it to be safe. You don't really have a good reason. Um, so, but a physician should be able to justify anything that they do. And sometimes they've got good justifications, right? So sometimes there are exceptions to guidelines or things and reasons why you would, you know, if someone has a sinusitis for two weeks, you know, you should prescribe an antibiotic because the guidelines say you should. Um, if they have less than that, you shouldn't. Um, but a clinical justification is like a prompt in the HR. And all it does is ask you to provide what, something that's accountable that will appear in the electronic health record as like part of the note that says, um, I did this because X, Y, Z. And so a lot of these it greater- It becomes part of your note. It becomes part of the note. Other physicians can see it. You know, if a patient presses the blue button and gets their medical record, they can see it. Um, and so now you're accountable for your actions in a clinical way, right? And if you're not sure why, if you should be doing something or not, and you know you're gonna get a justification, that you have to respond to or else it'll say no justification given, which also doesn't look good, then the justification serves this great purpose of always redirecting the clinician back to what is the clinical reason for doing this? If you can't justify it, then maybe you ought to think of another approach. And we're finding that it's a really great type of alert because what it does is not only does it redirect the clinician, but also clinicians see it less and less over time because they try to avoid it. They're like, well, actually, I probably this is a gray area. I don't have a good justification, so I'm not going to pick this, this care pathway. And then they don't see the, the alert anymore. So the alert fatigue goes away because they're becoming better clinicians. They're focusing more on clinical reasons for doing things, which is... Uh, it, has, it has to be done the right way. The ones that I have in front of my computer just annoy me like every right. single time i order a cat scan no matter what it is i don't even read what it says i can't even tell you what it says i just like i know it's going to cost me three extra clicks i'm going to say okay go away right. so i could order my cat scan i don't care what you have to say <laughs> right no that's right and a lot of those though but there's no probably no accountability you do those three clicks and you're done you order your cat scan and and yes uh Imaging in the emergency department is one of the areas of concern, <laughs> uh, but um, this is different because it it becomes part of the patient's chart. It's, it would say Dr. Lev did not give a justification for this scan, and that that you know could engender reputational concerns if you're like, well, I don't want other physicians seeing that I didn't provide a reason. That doesn't sound very professional. But but the problem with emergency medicine is that we're re Sometimes of us, we have a sixth sense. I can't tell you how many times in my 30 plus years in the emergency department, I'm like, I'm going to get this casket. I really don't need it. I'm just going to get it. And then it's like, whoa, check out that big epidural hematoma I never expected. And so I'm right. rewarded um, both by fear and positive outcome Yeah. to, to get those things. Right. This, yeah. Yeah. I, it's some, some of these areas are more difficult than others. And imaging is one of the areas that's more difficult because there are cases where you find something. But there's also downstream harms from imaging too, like incidentalomas, where you find things that create sort of 
bad care pathways for people that are right. Or well, here's one example. Anybody with cannabis bring marijuana back into the conversation. Anybody with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, their average number of abdominal CAT scans is probably five, and that's a huge amount of radiation that'll give them cancer later on in life. And one of the things I tell my patients is like, tell the doctor that you've had all these CAT scans so they don't scan you again. And that doesn't always happen, but that's an example. Like, you know, if there was some alert of getting cancer right. for somebody with marijuana. Right, or this person has, has had this many. Right, you know, age under 40 and marijuana use yeah. and maybe or something. Yeah, or, or telling the physician this person had this many rads of radiation, what justifies an additional CAT scan. And it's they've been negative every time. I mean, obviously it's. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That would be a helpful alert. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, yeah, very cool. All right. Well, that's so exciting. Thank you so much. This is I, I love talking to you. You have a, you know, like a, a big wide view of the medical community and, and our decisions and how to make things health better economically and public health wise and the big crises in our society. I want to say thank you to Natalie for your question. And I look forward to seeing your warm smile on the next busy shift that we're going to be working together. And uh, thank you, Jason, Dr. Doctor, for teaching me, inspiring me, and for publishing research that impacts the medical community clinically and inspires smart health policy. Thank you, Renee. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaac1.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.